1: Hello welcome and welcome to, to another Books episode Network. on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking with two of the three authors of a fascinating new book just out from Manchester University Press titled The Social Significance of Dining Out, A Study of Continuity and Change. Um, the book is written by Dr. Alan Ward, Dr. Jessica Paddock, and Dr. Jennifer Willens um, about dining out in England and how people think about this how people's behaviors have changed and um, comparing responses between a whole bunch of different people in London, Bristol and Preston from 1995 to 2015. This is a really interesting book that packs quite a lot in in a very accessible way and somehow manages to do it in not even like 800 pages. It's very readable. Um, And I'm very excited to dive into its many findings with two of the authors, um, Dr. Alan Ward and Dr. Jessica Paddock. So welcome both of you to the podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Alan, could you maybe start us off by introducing yourself and um, your team a little bit and explain why you decided to write this book?
2: Certainly, thank you. Yes, so I'm Alan Ward. I'm an emeritus professor at the University of Manchester and a professorial fellow at the Sustainable Consumption Institute in Manchester. I'm a a scholar studying consumption in particular and eating out and all sorts of aspects of food habits uh, in, in particular. Um, I come to this book because I did a, a study earlier on uh, with data from 1995 as part of the nation's diet programme of the Economic uh, ESRC, Economic uh and Social Science Research Council, anyway. uh, I did that with uh, Lydia Martins, who's now a professor at the University of Kiel. And at the time, it was a very uh, unusual and unique study. Sociologists hadn't taken any notice, really, of uh, eating out as an activity. And we were doing uh, quite pioneering work. And it was a study of the three cities that... uh, Miranda just mentioned, and various aspects of the activity of eating out. Uh, The book that came out was called Eating Out, Social Differentiation, Consumption, and Pleasure. And pleasure was an important part of that uh, account. Uh, I got the opportunity to repeat the study courtesy of the Sustainable Consumption Institute uh, in the early 2010s and the aim was to repeat uh, the similar methodologies, similar lines of inquiry to see what had changed. Social change is one of the other things I'm interested in. And I did that with two of the research fellows at the Sustainable Consumption Institute. Uh, one, the one who can't be with us, is Jen Willens. Uh, who is now a lecturer at the University of Bristol as is Jessica Um, and she was uh, working on, she works on time use uh, but she was particularly responsible in this study for the statistical analysis of the data that we collected Um, Jessica Jess can speak for herself uh, but we conducted Uh, an extended uh, empirical research project about which there was plenty to report and the book that we're discussing is, in a sense, that report.
1: Wonderful, thank you. Um, Jessica, would you like to introduce yourself?
3: Hi, yes, thank you. I'm Jessica Paddock, um, a sociologist and I'm working at the intersection of the sociology of food and eating, consumption, um, and issues of environmental sustainability or unsustainability. Um, I'm especially interested in the reproduction, reproduction of inequalities as they're figured in practices of eating. And I'm now based at the University of Bristol. And um, prior to that, I was the the uh, one of the research fellows on this project as Alan mentioned and I was especially excited to be part of this project given it's uh, sort of, um, it, it's rather a seminal text in the study of sociology of food and eating and it was really exciting for me to be part of the revisit of, of, of that study and too often in sociology as Alan said we neglect to explore the organisation of practices that give us pleasure and eating out is part of the tapestry of eating practices in our daily lives that belong to that category we think and revisits are really quite rare in the social sciences so this was a really nice opportunity to think about and study social change and develop research methodologies that can really help us to think about how we go about studying change in a practice
1: Mm. it was in fact the idea of um revisiting something that attracted me initially to the book because it is so rare in the social sciences to see something like this Um, and even without it being about eating out which is also something i quite enjoy in my daily life um i was really interested purely sort of from from a methodological point of view um and then of course i read the book and was like oh and also as someone who lives in britain and eats out there are multiple ways in which I find this interesting and relevant. Um, but I would like to start with that sort of methodological aspect. Can you tell us more about the methodologies used in the project and the book?
3: Yes. Well, um, as we embarked on this project, the revisit, as we now call it, we spent a good deal of time really sort of thinking about, you know, what, what, how would we do this? You know, is this a restudy? Is this... Um, um, you know, sort of what, what exa- what exa- how exactly would we uh, revisit this study, given that in 1995, very little was known about the practice of dining out. There was no systematic social science research exploring the practice. So in 1995, um, the research began with an in-depth, exploratory, qualitative set of interviews in Preston, in Preston only. And once some understanding of the matter was established, then a survey was designed and administered to one thousand one i think one thousand one hundred households across London, Preston, and Bristol. so these cities were chosen so as to generate data that would speak to regional differences between you know metropolitan and provincial cities you know just to um give a sense of how a practice was organized in a different setting so it didn't make sense to do a study that was say nationally representative because we wanted to understand the practice within a location with it within, within its, its sort of in situ as it were and when we re- decided to come towards the revisit we, we reversed that methodology given that we given that we knew a lot more about the practice from the first study we, we actually started with the survey across the three cities and then I followed up um, with, um, with with respondents from that survey and interviewed them. Um, we answered, sorry, we asked very similar questions um, as 1995. So key elements of the survey asked questions such as about, ask them questions about eating at home, their social activities, divisions of labour in the home. We asked them about eating out, also about takeaway food, And the survey really concentrated on the last main meal eaten at a public establishment and the last main meal eaten at someone else's home. And the survey ended with uh, gathering data related to socio demographics and social capital and so forth. And in 2015, given that we take this as a revisit rather than an exact replication of the 1995 study, that's the word I was looking for earlier, replication, uh, we modified this uh, research design to reflect more contemporary concerns as well. But in this way, we added categories rather than taking things away. So, for example, in the survey, we would ask about veganism, not just vegetarianism, for example. We'd ask about other kinds of um, other kinds of household activities um, around recycling and things like that, that we probably wouldn't have asked in 99, that we didn't ask in 1995 or that Alan and Lydia didn't ask in 1995. Um, yeah, so I think that's. Yeah. That's that for now. (laughs) No, a very, very useful um,
1: summary. um, And of course, quite helpful theoretically to think about kind of the idea of revisit as um, a concept. So thank you for starting us off um, with that. Moving then from methodology to um, some of the findings, can you tell us, I guess, um, less statistically, sort of more meaning what what does it mean to people um, surveyed and asked in these ways to eat out? What did it mean then? What does it mean now? What, what are we actually kind of talking about when it comes to meaning people put on this?
3: Hmm. Well, in 1995, eating out was considered very much an activity undertaken for pleasure, as it is now as well. But it wasn't in any way a routine activity. There was a dislike of formality, a real sense of indulgence of time. Um, Eating out was mainly for special occasions. And like in 1995, we focused on main meals. That's an important distinction for us. Um, In the qualitative interviews, we would ask respondents to um, tell us what they considered a main meal to be um, and what they considered eating out to be in order to kind of um, uh, gather gather a sense of these meanings um and just like in 1995 and 2015 um main meals were widely understood as the largest meals of the day eaten in the evening and were more likely than not a hot meal now while well, sort of the frequency of reported eating out hasn't increased significantly, this was one of our surprising findings, given that when we speak to anyone in the street or speak to our relatives, speak to our friends and say that we're doing this study on eating out and social change, they'd say, well, gosh, it's changed so much. And actually, our findings, when it came to frequency, didn't show a huge um, difference. Instead, what we observed was, um, as you just hinted at, a change in meanings. So to start telling you that story, we observed changes in purpose. Um, I'm speaking about the survey now as a basis for this more qualitative discussion in a second. Uh, we observed changes in purpose with more social occasions, more quick, convenient me- quick and convenient meals, and fewer special occasions in 2015. So we also see this simplification or what we call informalization of eating main meals out, according to various measures in the survey, but also in the qualitative interviews and features such as less dressing up, less planning in advance, more one course meals, less time spent at the table. So we use so that data kind of tells us or we, we, we argue with this data that this speaks to the changing meaning of eating out. So while frequency hasn't changed all that much, how people out has So to give a little bit more detail, maybe respondents were asked whether the reason for their most um, recent eating out occasion was for a special occasion or just a social occasion, uh, for a convenience or a quick meal, a business meeting meal, or some other reason that they would specify. But the proportion of last meals in restaurants that were described as special occasions fell, um, convenience and quick increased, and the proportion, which are just which were just social occasions and business, remained largely unchanged. Um, So talking then to interviewees about their eating out revealed two forms that we considered distinct then from these special meals. So given that um, special occasions and convenience, quick events kind of flipped between 1995 and 2015. And through the qualitative interviews, I really got the sense that um, we developed these categories of this impromptu and regularised social occasions. So the impromptu occasions, for example, these are the kinds of uh, meal event or eating out event um, that vary in the extent to which the meal was anticipated, planned and advanced. And this highlights for us issues of scheduling and synchronisation of different competing tasks and obligations in daily life. So grabbing a bite to eat in a cafe in between work and an evening event or a hobby, for example. Whereas this other kind of more casual um type of event this convenience quick or um um, sort of event is what we call the regularized social occasion and this is similarly less precisely planned but it's accomplished through regular appointments such as weekly family get-togethers fortnightly dates with a partner monthly dinners with friends and so on it's those sorts of occasions it's the changing meaning of that uh, uh, eating out event
1: Hmm. Thank you for explaining that. I think it's a really interesting kind of what has changed and therefore what people assume what else has changed, like, oh, the meaning has changed, therefore so has the frequency as well Um, and being able to kind of untangle that a bit. So, Alan, I'm wondering if there's anything else you can tell us about who eats out most frequently, what kinds of places people go and in what ways this has or has not changed?
2: Surely I can Um, In terms of frequency, uh, and it's probably worth saying, it's frequency of dining out. We changed the language between 1995 and 2015 to emphasise the fact that it's main meals. I mean, one reason why there's a popular perception that people eat out more often than they used to is because they now are much more likely to eat out for breakfast or uh, probably in the middle of the day. But... Frequency of dining out, having a main meal, we should say that almost everybody does this. Some people do it a lot and some people do it uh, relatively rarely. Uh, The sorts of social factors that increase frequency of eating out in a a main meal, um, and these are more or less the same in both years, are being... uh, Belonging to professional managerial class, having a higher income, having experienced higher education, identifying as white British, being young or younger, not having any children. Um, And in addition, it depends a bit how you feel about eating out. So he asked a set of attitude questions. of a better word same same questions in 1995 and 2015 um the same there there are significant shifts there or some shifts but the more you uh were adventurous about eating the more likely the more frequently you would eat out so some people are fairly conservative and fairly cautious that's a significant uh Basis for restricting frequency of eating out, Um, and if you like food, (laughs) you 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 may do it more frequently. Uh, Gender makes very little difference, though there was a uh, men were slightly more likely to eat out frequently. In 1995, there was no difference. By 2015, Um, what kinds of places? Well, uh, people eat out both on commercial premises and in other people's homes. Uh, We think eating in other people's homes is particularly interesting, actually. Um, Though when asked where their last meal was uh, in 2015, fewer were in domestic contexts, with your friends or with your non-resident family. Uh, and rather more in uh, restaurants, cafes, and the like. We gave people a long list of the kinds of types of places they might eat out: sure. pub, bar in a hotel, wine bar, pizza house, uh, fast food shop, so on, so forth. Uh, and um, there, the most popular places to eat are actually um, casual dining restaurants that was a concept that wasn't in existence in 1995 but people now uh, are very likely to say many of the chains many of the middle middle priced and lower priced chains uh, would be described as casual dining restaurants they're very popular Uh, pub restaurants and the Bar meals in pubs are also particularly popular. So when people are dining out, they're not mostly dining out in fine dining restaurants. They're not going to Michelin Michelin star restaurants. Uh, They're going to much more ordinary places. Um, The other thing that we think is very interesting about uh, the different places is the kind of cuisine that's served. And we asked people uh, in the survey Uh, What sort of cuisine was served to you the last time you ate out? And how often have you been, How? let me get this right, Uh, in the last year have you eaten out in uh, a traditional British restaurant, a Chinese restaurant, an Italian restaurant, um, a a Thai restaurant, an American restaurant? So there's both type of place and style of cuisine. And sometimes they match up. Um, if you, sometimes they don't. I mean, if you if you think of a pub menu, the the type of dish you might have selected could be from many different kinds of cuisines. Uh, the interesting, among the interesting uh, things in terms of difference, is that people are simply more aware of, are more likely to have gone to restaurants serving foreign cuisines of different, of different sorts. The range has actually increased, we think, in that 20-year period, and people are much more likely to have gone to something that would have been called an ethnic restaurant 20 or 30 years ago, though the term is now very uh, difficult to use. There's no doubt, however, that uh, foreign cuisine is symbolically significant when people think about uh, where to go and, and what to eat. Change? say so there's less but only slightly less domination of men in restaurants and um, there's more experience of foreign food. So uh, in statistical terms, in 1995 about half of our survey respondents said they had eaten in uh, a foreign a restaurant with foreign cuisine. It was more like eighty percent by twenty fifteen. So that's a significant. That's a significant change. Um, yeah, I think that's an answer to your question.
1: That very much is an answer, and a fascinating one at that. Thank you. Um, you've obviously mentioned kind of a key thing that I think people will pick up on the idea that um, this is focusing on dining out and kind of main meals. And that can impact sort of what we might colloquially think of in terms of frequency, um, because there are kind of more options now in some senses. So Jessica, I was wondering if you could kind of um, fill in the picture a little bit more for us. How do things like takeaway shops or prepared meals, like I don't know, buying a lasagna at M&S and taking it home. How does that fit into this kind of picture?
3: Well, um, just like Alan uh, said in relation to eating out in general or dining out in general, almost everybody uses uh, takeaways and prepared foods in some form, especially when we unpack and think about what we mean by prepared foods. It means a whole array of different things. So speaking from the qualitative data, takeaways are typically situated somewhere between eating in and eating out and are frequently used or mentioned or described in our kind of respondents vignettes as ways of removing the labour from a social event at home, for example. Ordering a takeaway together is somewhat of a social event, a way to socialise in the comfort of your own home without the work of cooking a meal and that plays into different ideas of reciprocity as well perhaps the host will pay for the takeaway for everyone or maybe it's and also for for some of our respondents especially younger respondents would um, describe occasions where um, they would invite friends around and they would um, all chip into a bowl and 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 pay for a, a, a takeaway to enjoy a takeaway together um and similarly you know ordering a takeaway uh, especially for solo households you know might be a way to kind of resolve some kind of contradictions in the day's planning or some mismatch in the day's planning between um other competing practices you know getting home too late from work the shop is closed you'll get a takeaway instead or um for for others perhaps who are unwell and are unable to cook or perhaps living alone um in later life um will rely on takeaways and prepared foods in order to um uh to feed themselves and prepared meals fit there and somewhere in this muddy category you know between takeaways and um um, and pre-prepared kind of convenience food um they're very much part of this uh, fabric of eating, especially for solo households, but not only for solo households. So um, this is where, again, the work of cooking an entire meal from scratch just for oneself, perhaps is less appealing. But again, nearly every type of household from families with children to solo households to shared households, you know, use pre-prepared food in some way as a m- means to resolve some of the um to remove some of the work from the process of preparing a cooked meal at home remembering that prepared foods can range from pre-chopped vegetables put into a stir fry uh so these are fresh foods and you're essentially still somewhat cooking from scratch you're just removing the stage of chopping from the process Um, um and an element of decision making you know which is a key part of the um uh, provisioning work or the, the provisioning of a meal um, so anything from these pre-chopped ingredients to meal kits that have already um, assembled the ingredients for you to a frozen lasagna or a chilled lasagna as you as you just mentioned or for example a chilled fresh pizza or you know and to which respondents often very much talk about adding fresh ingredients to jazzing up a pizza by adding extra fresh ingredients on top or um making a fresh salad to put on the side of a pre-prepared meal. So there are ideas of what constitutes um, a main meal and pre-prepared ingredients can sometimes provide part of that puzzle, but not always the whole the whole thing, which I which was an interesting kind of qualitative story to think there about the practice of, you know, um to think about cooking in relation to these kind of wider dynamics of fitting together and making kind of uh, making eating happen in the context of a really busy day week month
1: yeah and this is I think where um, one of the strengths of the book comes in is the mixing of the qualitative and the quantitative and being able to tell a lot of kind of nuanced stories um, rather than kind of lumping it all in together so thank you for sort of um, disentangling some of that showing us um, a bit of the nuance um, when it comes to takeaways prepared food and that kind of thing Um, and similarly and Alan you've hinted at this a little bit already so I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more about this Um, you all show in the book a variety of kind of types archetypes repertoires I believe is the term you use in the book um, of kind of Types of people, I guess, who eat out in different ways. You mentioned sort of restrictive or more adventurous. Um, so, can you tell us a bit more, Alan, about what these sort of broad categories of characteristics who of people who eat out in kind of certain ways?
2: Uh, sure. I mean, it's uh, in terms of uh, repertoires uh I've realized I haven't said that the average person, the mean frequency of eating out of dining out, as we define it, is about once a fortnight. So people are doing lots of other things as well as uh, dining out. Uh, and we look in the book at actually domestic household activities and how people fit eating out events into their domestic routines and also their visits to their friends. Um, When it comes to designing combinations of ways of going about eating, people do it in different kinds of ways. Some people eat out a huge amount. Some people eat a a large amount of convenience food, actually, at home. Uh, And there are ways of putting patterns together that are actually socially and symbolically significant, we think. We're particularly interested in in the way in which people uh, combine styles of food. So combine uh, dishes from different kinds of cuisines and how much variety they encounter in their eating eating behaviour. This could apply at home as well as in in restaurants. Uh, Some people are fairly conservative and eat Uh, rather similar things in a routine kind of way. Other people are more adventurous uh, and uh, experience a wider range of both types of places to go and types of foods to eat. What we find is that preferences kind of fall into blocks. I think we call them blocks without a K. Blocks with B-L-O-C-S, and if you find uh, people who um, eat uh, traditional English food a lot, you'll find they also eat um, American food, burgers and stuff, Um, Indian food to some extent, and Chinese food. They are the most popular cuisines in uh, the UK in 2015 in there's a second block of of tastes which is for relatively exclusive uh, restaurant meals uh, French and what we call modern modern British they're more expensive foods they're more expensive meals uh, they have a particular symbolic significance there's a third group of uh, tastes that form together uh, which we called uncommon, because they included the Thai vegetarian, um, Italian, actually. Uh, and uh, we, we were particularly interested in whether people ate across these particular blocks. It's partly there's a debate in cultural sociology about... Uh, cultural omnivorousness. Once upon a time, the story goes, um, you could see cultural distinction because the middle classes and upper middle classes liked high culture and everybody else liked uh, forms of popular culture. If that was the case, it probably was the case in the 1960s, 1970s. Uh, That has now uh, given way to Uh, distinction being associated with crossing cultural boundaries. So uh, you should have tastes not only in classical music but also in popular music. You should go to French restaurants but you should also go to Lebanese restaurants and the like. And uh, we uh, think of repertoires as the way in which people combine those tastes. And what you find is that some sections of the population have a much wider uh, range of uh, tastes and experiences than do others. They're predictable, it's again professional workers, graduates, people with higher income, people who identify as white British, the middle aged rather than the young in this case, um, and London and Bristol more than Preston in uh, 2015. Uh, some people have a very wide range of tastes. We call them in the book major omnivores, but uh, in popular discourse, they'd be more likely to be described as foodies. People who take a, uh, have a very high level of enthusiasm for food in general, and that is uh, apparent both in the way in which they organise their domestic Uh, food habits Uh, people who have gone to the majority of the types of restaurant and eaten the majority of types of cuisine are also likely to uh, entertain more at home to use uh, independent specialist food shops to purchase things very much more likely to say they like special occasion cooking and uh, that's tips over into when they go to restaurants. Uh, interestingly, I think, they're much less likely to, to say that the uh, the meal that they last ate was a special occasion, uh, and they're much less likely to have enjoyed it, which is, I think, an, interest, an interesting feature. So they've become probably so uh, inured to the activity that it no longer gives the high degree of pleasure that... Uh, most people feel when they go, go to restaurants. So we asked a set of questions about whether, uh, on the last occasion, uh, did you like the food? Did you like the company? Did you like the atmosphere? Did you like the service? And those kinds of things. One thing we haven't said is that people think uh, dining out is wonderful. By and large, people think dining out is wonderful. They give, uh, They say, yes, of course, we enjoyed the company and the food uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, the people who do it most often however are more critical and are particularly likely to not like the service and not be particularly fond of the food so the people who are most experienced uh, like things less which is sad really but it's good for everybody else
1: fascinating um thank you for explaining that to us i think it is quite interesting to see where those differences um, are. And obviously the demographics in some senses are quite predictable. Um, And we've spoken about some of them already in terms of um, wage and sort of class, um, that gender does not seem to make a particular difference. Um, But Jess, I'm wondering if you can tell us about, are there any trends that we can see um, either between the locations or over time, um, particularly around class or ethnicity?
3: Um, Well, actually, um, so as Alan was just um, talking about blocks of taste and sort of trends in um, uh, class there, um, what's interesting, and another sort of debate we're having with ourselves still even really is um, to delineate this idea of uh, major omnivores, those who sort of eat across blocks of taste. So They'll sort of go, you know, eat fish and chips from a fish and chip shop and eat a Michelin star restaurants and everything in between uh, tend to be um, those um, from from a um, more sort of um, a service class background uh, to hold service class occupations and um, tend to be uh, higher earners um, and have more assets and resources. And. When it comes to thinking about uh, describing them as foodies, we found that didn't really fit because another interesting sort of story to come out of the qualitative data in relation to in in conversation with these with this quantitative data is that everybody almost everybody described themselves as a foodie, and when we asked them what that means, they said, "Well, I like food." So, foodies um, is a term. That um, has developed in the literature to describe what we describe in the book and in our research as uh, major omnivores. Um, they as and with a performance of the kind of practice as Alan has just uh, described. But what so we are sort of doing some work to think about what the to delineate those terms to take seriously the idea that uh, especially those who have quite restrictive tastes um, and uh, restrictive. Um, activity in terms of engagement with types and styles of cuisine call themselves foodies as well so I think that tells us something also about um, class and ethnicity something that um, we unpack a little bit later on in the book but it's the gender dimension that I really wanted to to mention here because while we say there hasn't been there aren't any significant differences um, in relation to gender when it comes to eating out they eat out with the same regularity the frequencies um uh sort of uh, hold steady um in relation to gender but again i keep going back to this i um uh notion that meanings of such dining out practices clearly diverge as women appear to eat out for different reasons um so the restaurant appears um, according to our data to offer a space in which women can relax this is a word most commonly used by women by women describing um, eating out experiences um, with uh, fellow diners of the same gender. And this is because the restaurant has become an arena in which to hold the kinds of uh, social occasions that might have previously in 1995 taken place at home. But, this, but now the restaurant provides a scene where no one has the responsibility for hosting. It's an opportunity to spend time comfortably with each other without the routine domestic chores encroaching on time reserved for leisure. So um, suddenly having to put a child to bed in the middle of cooking dinner or um, um, being faced with other household tasks, unexpected or routine domestic chores, um, or actually even more importantly as well is um, frequently interview uh, interviewees. We'd speak about how sort of the social world, as we would put it, of their table couldn't be so easily interrupted by anyone other than the waiting staff. So women would talk about going out with female friends to a bar, for example, to socialise, but their space would be invaded um, by others. Um, Whereas the restaurant appears to have become a sort of um, a space, a scene, a a way of doing, eating out together in a restaurant is a way of doing friendship, especially um, among Women, So I think that sort of, um, tells us a little bit of um, something about change in relation to gender and this sort of, um, uh, the role of uh, dining out in facilitating a kind of space where women get to spend time together um, without being interrupted.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's
1: shopify.com
0: slash system.
1: Which is fascinating. I'm so glad um, you've kind of shared that um, finding with us. Um, You do mention that uh, later in the book, ethnicity is examined as well. Is there any trends or findings um, on that you could share with us?
2: I could say a brief word. I mean, our study isn't particularly good on ethnicity because uh, in a survey of 1,100 people, uh, one gets relatively few People who identify as anything other than white British, but there are significant differences, and there are apparent differences between uh, a- Asian and British Asian uh, minorities, who uh, like to go to Indian restaurants much more than um, than others. We only have Indian as, as, a, as and are likely to avoid British traditional British or modern British uh, kind of restaurants. Um, The Afro-Caribbean people in our our survey were uh, equally likely to avoid um, uh, things that are described as British, uh, but liked American and uh, Chinese restaurants, in fact. Uh, People who are white, but not British, uh, favoured the uncommon uh, uh, blocks, of, block of cuisine, and uh, we're more likely to go to the exclusive ones. Actually, uh, but basically, uh, ethnic mine, non-majority ethnic populations tend to avoid the things that are described as British. Uh, we don't have any significant data about how that's changed over the 20 years because of some differences in the way we did the study.
1: Mm. Interesting. Thank you. Um, I want to turn to um, kind of one of the trends, or I guess that one of the trends that sort of seems to go across all of the people um, that you spoke to um, and examined. And this was really interesting going to Jess, what you were just saying about kind of motivations for dining out that obviously really impacts the practical things of like which restaurants and how often, but also the meaning attached to them. Um, and in the book, you all talk about three core guiding principles that seem to be quite widely shared about when to eat out, where to eat out, things like that. And you describe them as being variety, comfort, and concern. Um, Alan, maybe you could take us through these?
2: Yes, this this was our deduction from the qualitative data, essentially, trying to work out how people understood what dining out was and what made dining out uh, enjoyable, uh, how they evaluated it. I've talked a little bit already about variety. Um, It it becomes an important distinguishing feature in the way in which people go about doing things. But whether you have a lot of variety or a little bit of variety, you still say, ah, variety is a good thing. So uh, in the qualitative interviews, people actually um, apologize for not being... Varied enough in their tastes, or not having uh, enough of a uh, of a tolerance for unfamiliar unfamiliar foods, so variety is at the the leading edge of uh, what you should be doing when you're when you're dining out. It's not that that wasn't the case in 1995, but it's probably more pronounced now, uh, and as people have experience more variety I think they've become uh, inured to thinking that uh, that's a good thing but they don't want to go and have uh, dining out experiences that they find uncomfortable basically um, people go to the sorts of places that will suit them and their friends, their networks, the people they go with uh, in relation to how they want to eat out, there is a sense in which uh, people were scared of restaurants in the 1970s, 1980s, um, in the period before uh, eating out became the kind of common and routine and regular activity that it is now. Um, Some people, omnivores again probably, uh, feel comfortable in lots of places. Other people feel comfortable only in a few. But importantly, they can uh, select the ones that they feel comfortable in. And everybody agrees that you should be uh, happy and relaxed and that the setting is part of the uh, condition for that being the case. The other thing is that everybody ought to have an opinion. This is a, sort of a discourse around, um, around dining out people should know about uh, eating out they know about options uh, and have opinions about those the what what they eat so uh, some of the explanations on, or the, the depth of knowledge varies depending on one's experience but people talk a lot about eating out we ask an, a, an attitude question about that and people uh, do indeed talk a lot about the the foods they've eaten, they exchange views uh, and describe experiences, uh, which requires a knowledge of the uh, the, the dining out scene, the, what's what's available. And I think what's interesting is that almost everybody, whether they're um, very kind of widely experienced in alternatives or not, subscribes to these. Uh, three principles. So uh, that's important in terms of c- class relationships in the sense that it does seem that uh, those people who think that variety and um, it, it's also a variety of manners, let me, let me say. I mean, some people quite like formal places. Uh, other people can't stand them. Uh, and that is uh, part of uh, a way of uh, ex- expressing uh, uh, cl- class differences and distinctions. Anyway, but it, it does seem that there is a general consensus that these are the kinds of things that you should look for in your experiences of dining out, um, and that's that's what people told us.
1: Fascinating. How then does this these three things fit into the trends um, you've seen over time in sort of the restaurant industry or the eating out industry, which um, the book sort of sums up as familiarization and diversification in some senses? Um, how do these three concerns sort of play into those two trends? mean
2: mm-hmm. both these two, Uh, these two uh, trends or processes have been going on for quite a long time Uh, familiarisation Jess described it earlier on uh, is people are kind of have got more used to it they've been to more restaurants Um, the uh, the experience is uh, more casual more comfortable um, less special occasions people eat out in dine out midweek more than they used to in the past. Um, There's less planning. Uh, Lots of people say uh, the last meal I ate out, I decided uh, less than an hour before I got there um, that we would go, I would go, we would go. It's mostly we. Uh, Relatively few people still uh, dine out in restaurants alone. which is because they basically feel comfortable with the activity of eating out. They become familiar because they've done it a lot. Diversification is probably a, initially um, generated by lots of different commercial alternatives. I mean, there are many more kinds of places that you could go to, um, different kinds of cuisines. The number of cuisines has increased and so forth. Uh, people have more opportunities than than in the past these two things relate to one another in the sense that um, more diversity means there are uh, for people who for instance don't like formal uh, dining can find places that that they would like to go so they become more familiar with eating out Um, and uh, equally uh, commercial provision comes to meet uh, the uh, the the needs and requirements of different sections of the population so they dovetail together Um, familiarization is more about to some degree more about uh, the consumption activities of the population diversification is a bit more commercially driven but they're they're related to one another Uh, they in some senses tug against one another though because Diversification emphasizes the style and the um, the aesthetic aspects of eating to some, t- some extent, whereas familiarization is getting used to it being an ordinary kind of activity. <laughs> so they are overarching processes. Uh, they have been going on for 60 or 70 years. So they, they didn't start in 1995. You could see them before. Before that, but they have to probably accelerated in the period between ninety five and twenty fifteen.
1: So, this is obviously addressed in the book, and in, to some extent, it's sort of the elephant in the room. So, I'd love to talk a bit about it. Um, can you maybe tell us about some institutional changes or explanations for sort of why these things have happened? Maybe a bit of sort of the reasons behind that acceleration.
2: Yes, sure. Yeah, I can I can, I can do that. Yeah, we, we are very concerned about, uh, we're sociologists, we want to explain um, in terms of wider social and cultural uh, trends, changes, uh, what's going on. And uh, I, at least, uh, fairly keen to, I think in terms of a trilogy of commodification, I'm sorry, these are all, Ications and isations, they're the ways that sociologists deal with social processes rather than um, individual modifications. But commodification connected to uh, kind of increasing affluence. I mean, people spend uh, a lot larger proportion of their food budget eating out in 2020 than they did in 1960. It's gone up from about 10 percent to 35 percent. Um, and that means that uh, commercial enterprises of one sort or another, the supermarkets as well as the, uh, as the restaurants, uh, are commodifying more of the activity of eating. Uh, at the same time, we should say that I mean most people still eat most of their own, of their meals in their own homes. but nevertheless, commodification is one process. Globalization is another. That's a master process of the period since the Second World War um, where uh, foreign influences on food, uh, international supplies of food, international migration, uh, and the circulation of ideas about eating uh, have all... Uh, accelerated in the in the in the period since, since the Second World War, um, and a third process that I think is important I would describe as aestheticization. It's a mouthful, um, but food is a bit more like art, or uh, sold under uh, pretensions of being uh, beautiful and of uh, high quality than it once was. And this is one of the things that I think did accelerate quite a lot between 1995 and 2015 uh, associated with uh, celebrity chefs with changes in the way in which uh, meals are constructed and the like. So um, eating becomes not just a functional uh, activity. I mean, it never was just a functional activity uh, and issues of health and nutrition and eating enough. uh, Aren't the most important, or are only among the important uh, things involved in, in eating, and uh, eating beautifully has become uh, a more significant uh, process. But they say these processes are quite, are quite long and, and and continuing, continuous. Um, but they uh, explain some of the ways in which the the cultural understanding of uh, dining out occurs they in turn uh, are related to changes in in kind of social structure and social arrangements um different different household compositions smaller households uh, the aging of the population um the involvement of women greater involvement of women in the labor market um to some extent very slow but significant changes in the uh, gender division of labour in the in, in the kitchen, so men cook a bit more than they used to. Um, uh, the shift from um, Britain being an industrial society to being a, a service economy, they're all part of the process that encourages the kinds of cultural trends that one can see, not just in the field of food, but in, in the field of fashion, in the field of... Uh, drinking, uh, all, all sorts of things. So commodification, globalization, and aestheticization between them uh, account for uh, significant uh, are significant forces in the ways in which dining out is shaped and culturally understood.
1: Thank you for explaining um, the processes and how they weave together. Um, it's a very powerful answer to part of the title looking at change over this time period. Um, but of course, I want to talk about the other part of the title before we finish, which is continuity. So maybe Jess, you could tell us what's not changed during this time period and why you think that might be the case?
3: Sure. Well, um, just thinking back to something that we discussed earlier is that, you know, people still really enjoy eating out. So uh, dining out is still very much um, a source of pleasure um, and it's still very much. And okay. Sticking with what hasn't changed. <laughs> the, um, the We would say that, you know, this practice of eating out in England over the last 20 years has only ever, only really seen moderate shifts towards people eating main meals out more frequently. And the change is really subtle so it's really not as great as we imagined and that's partly because of our focus on main meals so when people dine out they dine out for main meals hence the frequency not changing uh, particularly significantly um, and slightly different occasions are being reported with a large rise in one course meals as we say this process of uh, casualization um, while the casual dinner is occurring more on the special less um quick or convenient meals are especially likely to be unplanned they're perhaps embarked upon on the whim the spur of the moment or because people are hungry um that was the case 20 years ago um but the so as I was saying the passage of 20 years alters the meaning of the practice slightly as eating out becomes more ordinary um and sort of brings forth some sort of new forms of sociability, but they're not really new forms So people um, are reporting in 1995, getting together over a meal as a key form of sociability or celebration. And that is very much something that hasn't changed, despite there being more um, frequently reported, kind of more casual events. So we don't see these two things as kind of operating in tension. Um, while there are maybe fewer special occasions, um, people, are st- people um, have just simply become more familiar, you know, as um, as Alan just mentioned, as one of these um, trends, this familiarization and diversification. Um, um, and traditional, what I'm trying to say here is that it's the kind of, I guess, the traditional sociability has been moved to new settings. So um sociability among women for example as i mentioned earlier um, being more able to relax and enjoy the freedom um not only from food provisioning but also from other domestic tasks that might compete for their simultaneous attention so uh, the restaurant or the cafe or the bistro or the, the the pub with that serves food are kind of settings in which they can move their kind of form of sociability to another setting where they might be less disturbed um so, as I say, even the frequency of eating out has increased only moderately, and it's just the meanings um, that perhaps carry greater significance. Um, um, but I suppose one thing, other thing to mention is that, you know, in saying that the things that haven't changed or perhaps, you know, the overriding aspect is uh, that eating out or dining out brings a great deal of pleasure to, to most, um, is that... Um, given that, and we are making this argument that um, frequency has changed relatively little, um, that people also forget how much they eat out. So this is a kind of um, something that I noticed in conducting the qualitative interviews, Um, respondents can underestimate frequency, so they would be in the process of describing their last occasion in some detail. um, And about halfway through this account, of a, quite a re, more of a remarkable event you know a particularly memorable restaurant or a planned occasion and then they remembered actually that their last occasion for example was in fact a more impromptu event perhaps a day or so ago you know oh hold on a second actually they're in the middle of talking to me about having gone out for their partner's birthday they say, oh no i had a curry on the way home from uh, the train station last night when i bumped into um, um a friend on the street so there's Sociologically, that's pretty interesting to us because it um, tells us a lot about how our measures of... How we are measuring change has to be sort of tempered by the fact that we are recording um, accounts of the last main meal ate, eaten out. And when it comes to... And hence changing the name um, to dining out as opposed to eating out, because eating out has become more varied over the last 20 years, but dining out um, sort of does... Uh, does hold rather steady as a practice that is still you know holds significance it's special uh perhaps not as special as 20 years ago but it's very much enjoyed and it's part of sociability of doing friendship doing family um
1: wonderful um thank you i think that's really interesting um to think about kind of the human side and like oh wait hang on you're in the middle of an interview and suddenly they remember like something that's quite significant that they maybe hadn't thought of. Um, And that does show us kind of in, in kind of that one small example shows us a lot about what has changed and what hasn't. Um, so that's a great way to kind of finish us up. Thank you. Um, So I really only have one question left, which is uh, this book obviously does a lot of really interesting comparison between two different parts of the past, 1995 and 2015. Um, But for this very last question, I'd love to look to the future, if possible, and ask perhaps if there's anything any of the three of you are working on now or next that you'd like to give a little sneak preview of.
3: Well, um, I'm very much continuing with the same kind of uh, concepts um, that uh, we work with in this study of dining out. Um, I'm particularly interested in looking at how modes of provision mix and connect uh, in a Caribbean context, in a kind of post-colonial but kind of ongoing kind of imperial context and thinking about practices of eating in British overseas territories, for example, how they're organised and how they might change um, in the future in order to address problems of food insecurity um, brought about by um, economic, political, social changes. So um, my argument, as it were, or what I'm trying to work on here is to think about how understanding and mapping practices of eating as we've done in relation to dining out here um, might be done in this context as a way to understand the potential for transformation or uh, reconfiguration of practices to be more sustainable and food secure. Hmm. Intriguing. That's what I'm thinking about at the moment, (laughs) slowly.
1: (laughs) Intriguing. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, Alan, do you have anything you want to
2: add? Yeah. only to say that i'm trying to in broaden out from a, an understanding of continuity and change in dining out to wider aspects of eating in in the u k so i'm looking trying to write a a longer a, a study of uh, British food habits not just dining out um, from the second world war up to up to the present um, in the Uh, understanding that 20 years is a pretty short period when you're thinking about cultural change. Um, Things change all the time, but they change relatively slowly. And one of the things I uh, deduced from the study of 1995 to 2015 in Eating Out is that you need to take a longer historical uh, view of what's going on if you're actually going to understand and explain um the changes that one that one does see. I mean change is pretty continuous. There's there hasn't been anything that you would describe as a food revolution uh, since uh well it certainly wasn't between 1995 and and 2015. And I'm exploring that in in a bit more detail.
1: Fascinating. Um, Well, thank you both for sharing a little bit about your next project. Um, They both sound very interesting. If they become books, maybe we can have you back to tell us about them. Um, But while you are off working on those projects, um, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, which again is titled The Social Significance of Dining Out, A Study of Continuity and Change. Um, Thank you so much, Alan and Jess, for being with us on the podcast.
3: Thanks for having us.
2: Yes, thank you.